0: Well, happy Palm Sunday again! It's grateful to have you here with us today, and if you are a partner here with us at West Cabarrus Church today, is a special Sunday not just because it's Palm Sunday, but because it's our anniversary Sunday. And God has been faithful to this church for thirty-one years now—thirty-one years—and yeah, absolutely. And we we clap not for the past because we don't worship the past. We worship our God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, 31 years ago, uh, on our very first service as a church, we had uh, Eric Bolas come to trust Jesus Christ as Lord. Now he's playing the bass up here, even on this Sunday. Um, but that's what God did in the past, and God is still redeeming, rescuing, and saving. So, we've had four people come to Christ over the last several weeks here at the church, and we're excited about that. And so, next Sunday, on Easter Sunday, We're going to get to celebrate as a church family these lives that have been changed by Jesus Christ. And so we're thankful. We're thankful for what God has done. We want to be grateful for that. We want to thank God for what He is doing and what He will do until He comes again. And so grateful for all of that. Super grateful. Well, we're going to continue this series in John. We're going to be in John chapter 7. Um, We're going to start in the middle of this chapter. We covered the first half of it last week. We're going to pick up in verse 32 this week. And if you were here last week, you remember um, what's been happening, what's been going on. Jesus is there at the Feast of Booths, which we'll unpack a little bit today. And multiple times in John chapter 7, it says that there's a crowd of people that are listening to Jesus. And then there is a group of people who are seeking to arrest and kill Jesus. And it says that Jesus knows this. He actually tells the disciples this, that, that there's people here that are seeking to kill me. Now the reason why that matters to this passage today is because Jesus comes into this city and he is going to stand up in front of multitudes of people and, and shout a message at the top of his lungs. Now think about this for a second. Jesus knows That people in this city are seeking to arrest him and to kill him. And there's something in the heart of Jesus that says this message, which I'm going to speak, that we're going to read here in a minute, is so important that I'm willing to risk my life to speak it. So let's see what this message is that Jesus is willing to risk his life and ultimately one day give his life in order for us to hear Let's start in verse 32, and we'll stop a couple times throughout to explain. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about him. Now, the things that they've been hearing them say about Jesus, we looked at last week, but some people are saying, this is the Christ. This is the Lord. This is our rescuer who has come from heaven to earth. They're saying these things about Jesus. And so you have these political leaders, you have these religious leaders, and this is what they're going to do. And the chief priests... Pharisees they sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me you will not find me. Where I am you cannot come. (laughs) The Jews this is the Jewish leaders said to one another where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Now on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water now this he said about the spirit whom those who would believe in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified when they heard these words some of the people said this really is the prophet and others said this is the Christ but some said uh is the Christ to come from Galilee Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, I want to pause here for just a second because there's some confusion going on right now that John doesn't take time to explain because the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and and Luke were most likely written at this time or were written at this time. And so John is going on the assumption that we have read and we know that Jesus is, is from Bethlehem, right? That he was born in Bethlehem and they had to flee Bethlehem. And later he grew up in Galilee. And so is Jesus from the line of David? Absolutely. Is he been born in Bethlehem? Yes, but he grew up in Galilee. Now verse 43. So there's a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law and is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, And who was one of them said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for the invitation that we find in this passage. We thank you that you risked your life to share this message. But more than that, you gave your life in order to bring it to pass. So on the first Palm Sunday, Lord, you heard the people cry out, Hosanna or save now. And Lord, that's exactly what we pray and ask that you would do today. That you would save a thirsty soul. Would you save us from our sins and fill our souls with your spirit. Now let me invite you just to ask that God would speak to your thirsty soul today through his word. Pray and ask him to speak to you now in this moment of silence. And would you also pray for me as we come to this Uh, climax of of John chapter 7 this claim that Christ made would you pray for me that I'd be able to communicate his beautiful invitation clearly pray for me Lord Jesus like every week we remember that these words were written in the Gospel of John, that we may believe that you are the Christ and in believing that we would have life in your name. And so we ask that today. Help us to believe and live in you. It's in your name we ask. Amen. All right, what I want to do today is I want us to take these 20 verses that I just read to you and I want to condense it into one sentence And then what we're going to do is we're going to go verse by verse and kind of unpack this sentence of what's going on. But what I hope to do is when I give you the sentence, the kind of cliff notes of what's going on here, it gives us uh, where we can wrap our minds and our heads around what's going on in this whole section. And then we'll slowly unpack it. And this is the sentence that you'll see on the screen. Jesus goes where we cannot go. In order to give us what we desperately need so that anyone may believe and find life say it one more time. Jesus goes where we cannot go in order to give us what we desperately need so that anyone may believe and find life. So let's unpack this, starting with this first section. Jesus goes where we cannot go. That very first section, verses 32 through 36 there that I read, it's interesting because there's this dialogue that's going on. The, the, The religious leaders, the influential political leaders at this time, are looking out and they're like, man, they're saying a lot of interesting things about Jesus that we disagree with. They're saying that he's like this Messiah, he's this king, he's this Lord. We don't know if we like that. So we're going to hire some guys to go and arrest Jesus. And when they show up, there's this whole conversation that happens between Jesus and these people. He says that I am going to a place that you cannot come. Now, what is he talking about there, specifically in verse 33, where he says, I'm going to him who sent me. What Jesus is saying in this moment ultimately is that he's going to heaven. He's going to heaven and there's several steps along the way that he's going to take that these people cannot take. And we'll see why in just a second that they cannot go where Jesus is going. They can't ultimately go to heaven. But Jesus is going to take step after step to get back to the Father. He's going to take the step of Palm Sunday where he rides in on a donkey into the city where people will lay down palm branches and cry out loud, Hosanna, would you save Now. That's going to happen. That's one of the steps that Jesus is going to take. And then he's going to come back into the city later and he's going to do just that. He is going to save now. Where this time, instead of riding a donkey, he's carrying a cross. He's going to carry this cross up to Golgotha where he's going to be crucified in our place for our sins in order to save us. But it doesn't stop with that step. What we get to celebrate next week, and honestly every Sunday, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where he doesn't just die on the cross, but he rose from the grave. And then we see that he ascends after that to the Father. So there's a lot of places that Jesus is going to go that these people can't. But right here in verse 33, Jesus is clear. I'm going back to him who sent me. I'm going back to God the Father. I'm going back to heaven. And then he makes the statement, but you cannot come. When Jesus says this, this is about one of the most insulting things Jesus could have said to these arrogant religious people. Because when Jesus says that I'm going back to heaven and you can't come, these people are thinking, we're the righteous ones. We're the the MVPs of the religious culture right now. So you're telling me that we can't go to heaven? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? And they're offended by this. And the reason why they're offended by this is because they believe what the majority of Americans believe. And they believe that if you're good enough and you're a good person, then you get to go to heaven. They believe if I can just live out all these laws and commands and we'll add more commands to it and I can be a good enough person. If I'm good enough, then I get to go to heaven. And Jesus is like, you can't come there because you're trying to go without me. And there's only one way that you're going to get there. And it's not through being a good person, it's through Jesus Christ. Yeah. And when we sit here and we think, well, if I'm just good enough, then I can get to heaven, then the question you have to ask is, what is good enough? We were talking about this in our small group this last week. Is 51% good enough? <laughs> like if I'm 51% good and 49 and bad, then, then, I, then I get to get into heaven? And and if it is a certain percentage or a certain range that like, shouldn't God have told us in the Bible what that range was, what that percentage was? Like, is it, like in in school, if you get a 51 on something, that's an F. Like you failed English if you get a 51%. So is it like the C's get degrees? So if I get 75% good enough, then I get into heaven? Like, is that the the standard and the level that's going to allow me to go where Jesus is going? Is that what's going to allow me to get into heaven, Right? And if some of us are are honest with this, like some of us, we look at our life and we we have got a lot of life behind us where we've done a lot of bad things. And is there enough time in the semester to come for us to make up for all the bad things in the past to where we equal out and we're good enough, right? But what we often do is we judge ourselves on the curve. We think that as long as we're better than some other people, then God's going to welcome us in. But God doesn't grade on a curve he calls us to be holy as he is holy he looks at us and he says there's no one that is righteous no not one we're not good people and that's why we need a good God a good savior And some of us do feel really good about ourselves because we grade ourselves on a curve I heard about this survey this past week uh, where they interviewed Americans, and this is hysterical to me, but they they asked the uh, Americans, a number of them, this question, are you better looking than the average American? Okay? Statistically speaking, all right, I'm not a math person, but statistically speaking, you would think that 51% of the people would say I'm below average and 49% of the people they surveyed would say they're above average, right? Like just statistically speaking, you would say that that's the case. 84% 84% of people said they're above the average looks of an, another American. 84% of people, right? Like, there's something off with that. And after they, enter, after they answered this question, the 84% of them said that they're better looking than the average American. The interviewer um, explained to them something called self-serving bias. It's a real thing. Um, self-serving bias. And what self-serving bias is, is when you look at yourself and evaluate yourself, specifically when it comes to your looks or your IQ or your influence or biblically speaking, your righteousness, your goodness, you tend to grade yourself way higher than you actually are, okay? So the interviewer explains this to the people that are answering the questions. Then they follow up that question and said, do you believe in self-serving bias? To which 94% of people said yes. Yes, we agree with self-serving bias. It just doesn't apply to me it just doesn't apply to me. That's literally what happened in this. And when we evaluate ourselves with this self-serving bias, what happens is we look and we're like we're good. And friends, God loves us too much to let us keep this view of ourselves. We're not good. When you turn the pages of the Bible, And you'll see the sinfulness of humanity. You see the sinfulness in your own heart if you just look at your life for just a little while. See, we are not good. We are sinners in need of a Savior. We cannot go to heaven without Jesus Christ. There's no way. We cannot go where Jesus goes unless we go with him. And you might be thinking, well, well, Ryan, I really, really want to go to heaven, though. You don't understand, like, I love heaven and the idea of heaven, and I want to go there one day. So did the people this time. So did the people who were hitting, sitting there arguing with Jesus in this moment. Jesus doesn't say you don't want to go to heaven. He's saying because of your works-based self-righteousness, you're not going to get to heaven. You'll never get there. He's not denying their desire to get there. It's just their direction. They cannot get to heaven apart from him. Jesus, in his goodness, came to rescue those who were lost. He came to save them. What Jesus is is saying right here is that good people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. Redeemed people go to heaven. And we'll see it in a few months from now when we finally get to John chapter 14 as we continue to go through this book. But Jesus gets really clear with this, with his disciples in John 14. He says, hey, I'm going back to the Father. And disciples are like, wait, where are you going? And how do we get there? You remember how Jesus responds to this? He tells them, hey, I'm going to heaven. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And this is how you get there. You look to me. For I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. He tells them, there's no way you're going to get there unless you come to me. For I am the way. So That's what Jesus did. He went where we could not go in order to pave the way that we could go, because of what He did. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He went to cross and he died and he rose and he went to heaven so that we could get that gift. Second thing in the sentence is He did all of this in order to give us what we desperately need, what we desperately need, and you find this in the next few verses, and, and it's really important that we grasp this, that Jesus is going to make a very important statement. For everyone who has a thirsty soul, everyone who has a thirsty soul, Jesus chooses a very specific time and a specific place to make this wonderful claim, all you who thirst, come to me. And it says in verse 37 that he does it on the last day of the feast. All right, this is extremely important for us to understand to its fullness what Jesus said. If we didn't understand this, we could still read this And understand a little taste of what Jesus is saying we could still find that water for our thirsty souls but there's something amazing about the time that Jesus is doing this the last day of the feast all right those of you that have read the Bible you can go back and read in the Old Testament the book of Leviticus and 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 hear about what's going on but the Feast of Booths was put in place to help God's people remember how God loved provided for them and served them in the past so, they were in the wilderness after they had been rescued from Egypt for 40 years. 40 years. And while they're out there 40 years in the wilderness, God is providing for them over and over and over again. So, once they've made it to the promised land and they've built their homes, they don't want to forget what God has done in the past. And so, what they do is they set up this festival, this, this feast of the booths. And what they would do is they would go outside of the city, they'd leave their comfort of the city and their homes, and they'd go out and they'd go camping. They go camping for eight days. And some of y'all are like, camping, that sounds amazing. I'm not talking about RV camping. They're not RV camping out there, not glamping. This is a lean-to, okay? They're like building little sticks together and putting a a, a roof on top of that and they're staying out there for eight days. Why? Because they're remembering that they used to have no home and now they have a home. They used to be no people and now they have a nation. And they wanna be grateful to what God for what God has done for them. And so this is one of the traditions they have. They go outside of the city and they build these little huts and they stay there for eight days to remember how God provided for them. Another tradition that they had is that once a day, what they would do is they would go to the, the pool of Siloam. In the pool of Siloam, what they would do is the, the priest would get this, this jar and they would fill it up with water. And then they'd walk into the city and when they were walking into the city, they would be quoting the Bible. They'd actually be singing the Bible. They'd be singing Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. And they would sing and they would say, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And they'd go up to the temple and they'd pour this water out. And they would do it every day. Why in the world would they do that? Why? Because they're remembering how God provided water for them when they were in the wilderness. When they were thirsty, when they were dehydrated and they wanted something to drink, God provided water from a rock. And what Jesus does the last day of the feast, after they've done this eight times, they've got water and they've walked up and they've poured it out, Jesus stands up. And and it took me a a couple times of reading this through, but, but look at verse 37 again. So all these people around, they've just poured this water out, most likely, and Jesus stood up and he cried out. I mean, you imagine the awkwardness of this moment. They've just like, they've been singing this song, like, with joy you will draw from the waters of the wells of salvation. And Jesus stands up and he shouts at the top of his lungs, anyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. I mean, what's been on their mind? What's been on their lips? Isaiah 12, the wells of salvation. And then Jesus is like, the well is here. The water is here. You want something for your thirsty soul? You want salvation? It has arrived in this moment. And Jesus shouts it loud for everyone to hear. This is what Jesus is claiming in this moment. See, Jesus is a picture of that rock in the Old Testament. And this is what's amazing. If you go back, and I'd encourage you to do this, Read Exodus 17. Exodus 17 is where this moment happens where they get water from a rock. And what happens in that that, that moment when you kind of unpack it is you see more and more of this image of Christ in Exodus 17. See, what happens is the people are mad at God for where he has led them. They don't like how God's leading them. They don't like the decision that God is telling them to do and not to. So there they are in the wilderness and they complain about God. But they can't kill God at this time, so they look at His. His man, and they look at Moses, and they're like, Well, fine, we're gonna put you on trial, and we'll kill you instead. So Moses cries out to God, he's like, God, I don't know what to do. These people are ready to put me on trial, they're ready to kill me. And God's response is, Man, these people need to die. They've rebelled against me, They're, they're not trusting me. I've provided for them food, I've provided for them rescue, I've provided for them a cloud over their head, and they wanna complain about me. They should die for their sins. And so now there's this like trial going on. Is Moses going to die or are the people going to die? Like what is going to happen? And so what God does is he tells Moses, hey, get the elders, which this is kind of like your your jury. Get the jury and get the rod because the rod is what you would execute judgment with. And then I want you to walk up to this rock. Now we kind of already know the finish line of what's going to happen. People at that time, even when you're reading this, you're like, what is going to happen? Like they're coming up here and this is a trial that's about to happen. And they walk up there with the elders. They walk up there with Moses. Is Moses going to die? Are the people going to die? And God says, I want you to strike that rock. I want you to hit it. Let the rock take the judgment for these people. Moses, this is a great faith in this moment to be in front of a whole crowd of people. But he's like, okay, God, I don't know how this is going to work. But he takes the, the rod and he strikes the rock and the rock breaks over and water comes out and fills thirsty people's lives they have all this water to drink now this is an image of christ because that rock was struck instead of the people for their sins this is why jesus stands up and shouts the word come to me and drink because jesus would be struck for our sins in our place on the cross to give us salvation and to give us living water the rock of this image is christ himself and some of you're like ryan i can't go there I don't really, I'm not tracking. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Take God's word, word for it, right? First uh, First Corinthians chapter 10. This is what God's word says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's the pillar of cloud that God put over their heads so in the desert they wouldn't get sunburned all the time. He gave them a shade. And they all passed through the sea. That's the parting of the Red Sea. And we're into the baptism of Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Christ. Jesus is making that claim in this moment. I am the rock that will be struck to give you this living water that your soul longs for. If you would just look to him and believe But what I love about this passage is it it doesn't just stop with the water that we get. And it's not just that Jesus died on the cross and it's like, here's water for you. But if you look at verse 38, it says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Why does it not say into his heart will flow rivers of living water? Because when Christ saves you and redeems you places his spirit within you it's not an end it's not a pool that living water flows out of you to others we are not the pool we are a river for which this good news of Jesus Christ being struck in our place for our sins is to flow out and so yes out of our heart if you're a believer out of your heart flows rivers of living water. That we should be faithful to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Because it does not end with us. God, remember at the start of the service, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still rescuing and redeeming people. And so we should be faithful to share this good news of Jesus Christ from neighborhoods to nations. Because there are a lot of people. And we know that there's a lot of people because we as believers sat there one day where we were Either drinking salt water and our souls were thirsty, or we were drinking the sand because we knew no difference. And there are a lot of people in our world, in our neighborhoods, in the nations who are drinking sand, drinking salt water because they don't know the living water that Jesus Christ offers them. So may we look at the words of Christ and believe this truth that out of our heart will flow rivers. Of living water to others so that they may believe, which is the third point. Jesus did all this so anyone may believe and find life. That anyone may believe and find life. Did you see that in verses 37 and verse 38? Jesus cries out and he says this, and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. He doesn't say, Well, if some people, no, he says, Anyone. Whoever believes in me, in verse 38, whoever is whoever. The only prerequisite that Jesus gives for us finding salvation is that we thirst. That's the only prerequisite that he gives. So Jesus is looking for thirsty people and he's speaking this truth. And we all need this. This anyone, this whosoever applies to everybody. And Jesus uses this illustration twice to confirm this point. You guys remember back in John chapter four, the woman at the well, where Jesus says, I thirst, will you give me something to drink? What's that lady's life like? She was rejected, she was despised by culture. She had been trying to be satisfied by the love of men for her life. And so she had had multiple husbands and Jesus is like, that's not gonna satisfy you. It's not gonna satisfy you. And so Jesus looks at this woman and he says, if you knew who I was, the one who asked you for water, you would ask me for water and I would give you living water. And we would look at her and say, this is an immoral person. Man, yes, she needs that water. But who is Jesus talking to in this scene? Who is he standing up in front of and making these claims to? The religious people. He stands up to to the people who have taken time out of their day to, to live out in booths and walk in with this water and sing this song. And Jesus looks and he's like, hey, if you're thirsty... If you've been trusting your good works and working so hard for your performance and you're exhausted and you're weary and you're tired, then come to me. Come to me and believe. Whosoever, this is, hits the entire range from the immoral woman at the well to the, quote, moral person living there doing their religious acts. When Jesus speaks and he's like, if you're thirsty, come to me and you will find life. This applies to everybody, to all extremes. All you have to be willing to do is say, I'm thirsty. It's the thirsty people who find life. You know who gets excluded? Who doesn't find this living water? Who doesn't find heaven? It's the people who won't admit their emptiness. It's the people who are satisfied with themselves instead of looking to their Savior. These are the people that miss out. What's interesting here is Jesus speaks these truths and the religious leaders are seeking to arrest them. And it's interesting in verse 46 and or verse 45 and 46, they these people that had been hired to arrest Jesus, they come back and they're empty-handed. They don't have Jesus. Now think about this. Just, you gotta understand, these people, their job as a living was to arrest people. That's what they did. They knew how to arrest people. It wasn't like, whoops, Jesus slipped away. Sorry, we didn't know how to arrest him in this moment. They didn't come back and and tell the people, well, we were gonna arrest him, but we were afraid of a riot, so we didn't arrest him. When they come back to to the religious leaders at this time and the religious leaders are like, why do you not have Jesus? Their response in verse 46 is amazing. They say no one has ever spoke like this man. Now it doesn't tell us in this passage, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least if these people went to arrest Jesus and they hear him saying these words, if your soul is thirsty, come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you living water. I will quench the thirst of your hungry soul. And when he started to hear, these, these people started to hear the words of Christ, I think some of them probably looked and were like, man, I. I'm thirsty, I I need this, I need this water, I'm in desperate need. So I don't know for sure, but that's my assumption. I I, I do believe that they at least knew the power behind Christ's words and what he was saying had weight and had meaning, had substance behind it. So much so they're like, we're not going to arrest him. We'd rather get flogged by you guys than arrest this man. But what, is it, what does it do to the people in this moment? It creates division. Some people are believing, some people are trusting in Christ because they're thirsty. And other people are like, nope, kill him. Get him out of here. We don't want a Lord like this. We don't want him to be our king. Get him out of here. And it tells us in verse 30, 43 rather verse 43, there was a division among the people. Now hear me carefully in this moment. The edge of Jesus' blade is so sharp that you cannot stand on it without taking the side. Jesus' claims will not allow allow us to stand in neutral when it comes to Jesus. That's why it creates division. I mean, Jesus makes the claim in John uh, 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a divisive claim, right? This is exclusive—that the only way that we find this living water, the only way that we have this life and forgiveness, is because of Jesus Christ. He is the only one. He's the only way. That's exclusive. But what I love about it is it's—it's it's an inclusive statement too. That whosoever believes in him can have this life. Anyone who thirsts can have this life that Jesus Christ offers. All you have to be willing to do is say, I am thirsty. In my sins, I am thirsty and I need that living water. Jesus gives this invitation in John 7, but the gospel demands a response. That we have to receive this gift, believe in him. And here's the beauty of this passage today. If you choose to believe in Jesus, if you choose to to be forgiven of your sins and to find this living water, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 tells us that if you have believed or you will believe, that one day you will stand with God and you will speak these words out loud with him. Revelation 22 says that one day the church will proclaim with the Spirit, Come, you who are thirsty, and drink the water of life without price. That is our destination as believers in Jesus Christ. So, are you thirsty today? Have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you ever admitted that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you ever believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died in your place? Have you ever confessed Him as Lord in your life? That's the only way that you're going to find this living water for your soul. For those of us that have trusted in Him and believed in Him and found this living water, have you shared it? Have you allowed that living water to flow out of your heart and to share with others? Today we praise God for what he did and we celebrate what he did for us as believers as we take the Lord's Supper. Because this is what we're doing. We're remembering back to this truth that Jesus went where we could not go in order to give us what we desperately need, that whoever believed in him would have life. And so we take the Lord's Supper today as a church, as a family of believers saying, this is what we believe. And so god's word is really clear that this is the the lord's supper this is the lord's table he gets to invite who he's going to invite to it I, I don't make those boundaries i don't invite i don't send out those invitations but jesus in his word clearly says that this is for believers and so if you have not trusted in jesus christ if you've not admitted that you're a sinner you needed a savior if you haven't confessed your sins then just let this pass or in this moment of silence so i'm going to give you to pray use this as a time to confess him as Lord and find salvation. Just like these other people have over the last few weeks and that we'll celebrate in baptism next week. For those of us that know Jesus Christ as Lord, then he welcomes you to the table to take in remembrance of what he's done. And just know when you take this, this is what you're doing, you're proclaiming. With your action, you're proclaiming, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Not because I'm a good person, but because I desperately needed him. Jesus poured out his blood for me is a sign of the new covenant so that we could be invited into heaven. We could be invited to his table. And so church family, before we take the Lord's Supper, remembering our pardon that we have through Christ, let's take a few moments to pray, to confess our sin and to thank him that he says, if we confess our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let's take a minute now and let's pray and repent and praise. Let's pray now. Jesus would you hear our prayers and forgive us for searching in all these different areas to find try to find a solution for our thirsty souls Lord we've looked to, to pleasure we've looked to lust Lord we've looked to the the things of this world to satisfy our soul and it's left us lacking over and over and over again. And so we just confess and ask that you would forgive us from looking to those things instead of looking to you. Lord, we confess our sin of thinking that what's gonna ultimately satisfy our lives and our soul is us being in control. That if we can control our, our finances, if we can control our job, if we can control the world around us, then, then there'll be peace then the, the hole in our heart that longs for peace will be satisfied and Lord you've shown us again and again that we aren't in control and there's so much that's out of our hands and so Lord we confess that sin of trying to be king and we look to you as our king today thanking you that you being in control of all things still chose to come and die on the cross for our sins in our place God thank you for that Thank you that because you did that, we have forgiveness of our sins. We have hope of heaven before us, where we will one day stand alongside of you and say, come all who are thirsty, come drink the water of life without price, because Lord Jesus, you paid the price on the cross. So Lord, we thank you for that. And we remember it now as we take the Lord's supper. Amen. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, before he went to the cross, We're remembering it this week on Good Friday. We're remembering how Christ took this bread and he said, this is a picture of my body. It'll be given for you, take in remembrance of me. So let's do that now, church. And then Jesus looked at his disciples and he gave them the cup and he said, drink. This is the cup of the new covenant. The old covenant was in the Old Testament in the law, but he says, no, this is the new covenant made in grace and love where I will fulfill the law, every last ounce of it. And I will stand in your place and pour out my blood that you can be forgiven. So let's take and remember the new covenant that Christ has made through his blood. Church family, there's no better way to enter into singing this song than to remember what Christ has done for us. So let's stand now and let's sing to Jesus.